0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what's on the to-do list for the 2017 Arizona Legislature? Where has all the sand in the Grand Canyon gone? Does proper diction make an important difference in daily life? And a talk with Renee Taylor about coming to Tucson with her husband, Joe Bologna, to do a play they wrote called My Life on a Diet. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The legislative session that starts Monday will introduce new faces to Arizona politics. Nearly one-third of state lawmakers are freshmen. With that comes new ideas, along with some old conflicts. Christopher Conover
1: reports. Passing a state budget is the only thing the legislature must complete. That annual spending plan becomes the most influential thing in the legislative session. Education is at the top of the list again when it comes to funding priorities. The legislature is controlled by Republicans, but an inter-party fight could complicate the education funding discussion. State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Diane Douglas, has a strategic plan called Kids Can't Wait that calls for hundreds of millions in new spending.
2: In our Arizona Kids Can't Wait plan, the first major section is all about funding, and we asked for some funding, um, $200 million, And that's to address issues like that that we know are coming for our schools.
1: Superintendent Douglas doesn't have budgetary authority. That rests in the hands of the legislature. House Speaker-elect J.D. Mesnard says he appreciates the superintendent's proposal, but...
3: She's the superintendent, so she is sort of the face of of K-12, and and that's where she's focused, is education. Um, I certainly appreciate and respect her role, Our role is broader than that and so um, certainly if you're looking at one issue in isolation it's easy to just throw all the resources you've got at that one issue. And there's no doubt that K-12 is among the top priorities. But we also have public safety, we have health care, things that are very important.
1: Senate President-elect Steve Yarbrough, like his counterpart in the House, would like to see more money for education, but he too is worried about the financial realities.
0: The simple fact of the matter is that it now appears to me that there is little or none uh, of any funds available, quite frankly, for, for doing those kinds of things.
1: Speaker-elect Mesnard is hopeful that some new money can go to education during this legislative session.
3: I think you're gonna see see a lot of interest in um, not only classroom spending, but in uh, school construction and building maintenance. When the economy uh, took a dive, we scaled some of those uh, dollars back for for new facilities or upkeep of facilities, and we need to uh, re-examine that or else we're gonna uh, be in a world of hurt later.
1: Arizona's new voter-approved minimum wage law known as Proposition 206 went into effect this week. It's causing a financial crunch for legislative budget writers this year, according to Senate President-elect Yarborough.
0: We thought we were going to have about $24 million of, of new money, so to speak, but that was before people started doing the calculations about the impact of 206, and right now uh, it, it's probably zero or even negative as far as doing those kinds of things.
1: State government is not required to abide by the increase, but Governor Doug Ducey says he wants low-paid state workers to get the raise to $10 an hour.
3: We're preparing for uh, the passing of Proposition 206. We plan for it in the agencies and uh, in our budget, but the the courts will speak and um, we'll see about uh, what they say.
1: Business groups have challenged the increase as unconstitutional. The state Supreme Court turned down their request to put it on hold until the case can be heard. The court will decide next month if it will take on the issue. Some opponents of the increase have called for another ballot measure to repeal it. Governor Ducey opposes that idea.
3: The people have spoken. There's an issue. It's in front of the courts and we'll let the courts decide.
1: Money is at the top of the priority list for local governments, too, as they look to the state capitol during the legislative session. Marana Mayor Ed Honey says the return of transportation dollars is crucial.
0: We're just concerned. uh, They had taken some of our uh, revenue sharing when the state was in such big trouble after the recession,
1: and we're hoping to get all of that money back. Mayor Honey's call is echoed by Pima County and City of Tucson officials. Tucson Mayor Jonathan Rothschild says he wants to see more transit money.
4: At one time, the state had a local transportation assistance fund and those funds would go to transit systems And we have traditionally asked that those monies be returned.
1: Adding money to any budget is always a difficult request. But House Speaker-elect Mesnard says it's not a guaranteed no.
3: Now if the revenues get even better, then uh, there may be some more capacity for uh, looking at areas.
1: The legislative session begins with the governor's annual State of the State address, where he lays out his budget priorities and other plans for the political year. I'm Christopher Conover, Arizona Public Media.
0: You can get more coverage of this new legislative session on PBS 6 this weekend on both Metro Week and Arizona Week. And you can find all the news online at azpm.org. The Grand Canyon is currently running low on sand. Sediment that once washed down the Colorado River to form beaches is now trapped behind Glen Canyon Dam. For two decades, river managers have released artificial floods to rebuild the beaches. But it's not clear if the river has enough sand for these experiments to continue. That's what scientists want to find out. From the Arizona Science Desk, Melissa Sevigny reports.
5: Enormous floods once thundered through the Grand Canyon, but that's a rare sight these days. So there's a lot of excitement as a crowd gathers at the base of Glen Canyon Dam. A massive tube cranks open and water gushes out. The calm river begins to churn.
2: There's a mist over the river and it's really, truly awesome to see.
5: Katrina Grants of the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation helped plan this four-day flood. It's like watching an Olympic-sized swimming pool empty into the river every two and a half seconds.
2: The more water that we can get out, the more sediment that's stirred up, um, and the more that we can rebuild those beaches.
5: Beaches in the Grand Canyon are vital for plants and wildlife and for people who need places to camp. When Glen Canyon Dam was completed in the 60s, those beaches began to vanish. Scientists thought controlled floods or high-flow experiments might fix the problem. Rob Billerbeck of the National Park Service says the first attempt in 1996 was only a partial success.
0: At that time, they thought just running the high flow would pick up sediment off the channel bed and redistribute it.
5: Turns out there wasn't enough sand. It's all stuck behind the dam. Billerbeck says they learned it's best to flood the river just after tributaries dump a bunch of fresh mud in the Colorado.
0: And that really maximizes it that way they The water that's moving downstream, that wave of of water, will pick up the highest concentration of sediment to redistribute.
5: For decades, scientists have rafted the river before and after these events, measuring sandbars and the silt suspended in the water. This is the seventh high-flow experiment. Paul Grams, a hydrologist at the U.S. Geological Survey, pulls up a photograph taken before the flood. It shows a thin layer of sand along the shoreline.
0: And then the photo taken uh, immediately after the high flow shows a large, bare sandbar uh, sticking out into the river channel.
5: That's just what he wants to see. But Graham says there's a problem.
0: At least 80% or more of of the sand is below the water.
5: And it's tough to measure sand in this unseen world. That's the only way for scientists to know if controlled floods will continue to work years or decades from now. It's like checking your bank account, says Matt Kaplinski, a geologist at Northern Arizona University.
0: You gotta have sand in the bank to build the sandbars.
5: Kaplinski and his colleagues use a sonar instrument to bounce sound waves off the bottom of the river. They use the data to make color-coded elevation maps that reveal deep pockets of sand and stretches of bedrock.
1: You map it once and then several
0: years later you map it again and you compare those two surveys and you look at the change in the bed elevation and you can determine what's been eroded and what's been deposited, figuring out how the river works is a pretty lofty goal.
5: But it's a goal that's changing the way the river is managed. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation just signed a plan to continue the experimental floods for another 20 years. I'm Melissa Sivigny in Flagstaff.
0: Language is said to be power but are too many modern Americans giving that power away with sloppy pronunciation and poor word choices. Next, Bryn Baylor talks with film actor Anna Risley, a familiar face in early Woody Allen films and a former Saturday Night Live cast member. Anna Risley teaches improv, drama, and diction at the Studio for Actors, her business in Tucson.
2: This is a story about the downfall of language, at least the decline of American English spoken correctly. Today, we're going to talk to Anna Risley, who's worked as a voice actor on Broadway and in movies, as well as on TV. Her prescription is correct pronunciation, and her goal is to help others find their voice, literally. So,
6: how did I do? You stunk. No, (laughs) you you did pretty well. You did pretty well. There were a couple of words. Well, correctly. We need the T. Correctly. Versus correctly. 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 Mm, okay. Correct. Um, let's see. Um, that was really good, uh, with the exception of um, prescription. So what exactly is diction, and how did you get into the diction business? I don't even remember how, uh, probably just from having an acting career. Um, you know, you have to speak properly when you're on stage, but, <laughs> but or nobody can understand what you're saying. Uh, I think... Diction could be described as, well, simply described as final T's, final D's. For instance, the word and, a lot of people just say an. Another example would be for. You want to say for instead of fur. You want to say gat instead of git. And uh, ing is a big problem. Even in Tucson, ing is a big problem. It's usually. Um, attributed to Midwestern, but uh, ing. So people are saying walking, biking, hiking. It's an E-E-N sound rather than ing. Why do you think the the end of words kind of gets lopped off these days? Why? Mm -hmm. Because people are speaking too quickly. And so they're kind of jamming everything together. So it's a bunch of mashed potatoes. And they're trying to get through it so quickly.
2: OK, I'm going to give you my all time pet peeve pronunciation. And that is uh, ax instead of ask. <laughs> do, you, do you have a hall of shame, I guess, diction-wise? It,
6: it feels like an African blow dart hitting me in the neck is what it feels like when I hear someone say, actually, just these little things. And I think I got all this from my mother because she pounded into all four of us excellent diction and mostly grammar, just constantly, constantly. Uh, reminding us you know. Was she a writer? No, she was just a fantastic mother. And (laughs) part of her program was (laughs) diction and grammar. In doing some research for this article I found out that I'm saying certain
2: mispronouncing certain words. I say often. Turns out it's actually often. It is. But then again the type of people who would say when or
6: where, or. <laughs> you kind of want to punch him in yes, the face. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> they're
2: not the type of people I want to have a beer with, let's put it that way. Okay,
6: well, um, the goal of diction is certainly not to sound as if you're a professor from England or a Shakespearean actor. The goal of diction is to be really readily understood. That's it. So first we slow down a little bit, and then we start getting correct diction, and it makes such a huge difference as far as the initial impression you're making on people. It's like looking at rotten teeth, you know, when you first meet someone, it, that has all kinds of subliminal impressions starting to fire off in your head. Uh, the same thing is when you meet someone with very, very poor diction. So what's more important, how you say it or what you say? They're both, both very important. How you say it, how you present it is really critical, as well as the content, you know. Who comes to me for diction? Businessmen, businesswomen, uh, professors, people who have to give, you know, lectures. People who are just about to embark on job interviews and so they want me to do mock interview work with them. We do role play so that we work on their diction with regard to their job interview lawyers, also uh, a lot of um, just people off the street who want to sound better, who want to be understood. I appreciate you coming to talk to us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Bryn Baylor spoke with performer and teacher Anna Risley from the Studio for Actors in Tucson. When Renee Taylor began doing stand-up comedy in the early 60s, near her birthplace in the Bronx, her opening act was a then-unknown singer named Barbara Streisand. Renee Taylor's earliest film successes were in The Errand Boy with Jerry Lewis and The Producers, where she acted alongside her close friend Gene Wilder. Today's audiences might know her best as Fran Drescher's mother on the TV show The Nanny. Renee Taylor has been married to actor and director Joseph Bologna since the mid-60s, and the two have also been creative partners. They co-wrote the Broadway hit Lovers and Other Strangers, and they received Oscar nominations for the 1970 film adaptation. This weekend, Renee Taylor and Joe Bologna visit Tucson for two performances of their play My Life on a Diet. I talked with Renee about how this production came to be.
4: My whole life, I remember what I was eating, what diet I was on. You know, like some people remember their life, what they were wearing. I remember what diet I was on, because my whole life, since I was like seven years old, I've been like on crazy diets. And whenever I met somebody famous, some actress, I always said, what were you eating? Because I thought if I ate what they ate, I'd look like them. When I met Marilyn Monroe, I thought, Oh, if she told me what she ate and I ate it, I'd look like that. <laughs> Grace Kelly, whoever I met, I asked them what their diet was and then did their diet. And then look in the mirror. Yeah,
0: okay. And why didn't you like what you saw? You you had a great career all your own. You didn't have to try to, uh, you know, follow them.
4: Uh, that's true. But Marilyn Monroe had skin like a peach. It was iridescent. <laughs> and she sparkled. And I thought, oh, it must be from inside. It must be from the food.
0: What have you learned? What wisdom has being on all these diets over the years taught you?
4: Actually, I'm eating less, and I feel my feelings more. If I make contact with what I'm feeling and I express the fear, the pain, the joy, then I don't have to feed the feeling or repress the feeling. So most of the times when I eat, it's because... There's something that I don't want
0: to feel. I think uh, for me, eating is a big stress reliever, or at least I think that it is. If I feel stressed out, I feel run down. If I snack a little or have one of my favorite foods, then I feel like I'm going to... It's
4: comfort. It's comfort, yeah. But you know what? If you give yourself a big hug, if you cry or you laugh, that's, that's comforting too, to go to the source.
0: Well, tell our listeners how long you and Joe have been together.
4: I'm either thirty eight <laughs> right or eighty three. Okay. It's one or the other. And I've been married over fifty years. And he's still my boyfriend. He's still the man of my dreams. But don't tell my husband.
0: <laughs> well, do you remember what diet you were on when you met Joe? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us about that?
4: You know, I'm on it now. Again. Have you heard about the um the master drink?
0: No. Mm mm.
4: Share was the one who told me about it. I see. What it is is um, maple syrup, apple cider vinegar, paprika. That's what it is.
0: And what does that do for you, though, when you drink it? It takes
4: away your appetite. <laughs> and so, you lose weight.
0: Yeah. Okay. You lose weight, but do you feel good? Do you feel good? You,
4: feel, good? you, you d- feel great. Like last night, I had it instead of dinner.
0: Looking at the years that you and Joe have been together, has he been on diets before? Has he no, followed you down Italian, these roads? No. So by being Italian, does that mean that he processes carbs really well? What's,
4: what he is... lives for pasta and ravioli. His mother, when we first got married, gave me a recipe. She said, the night before you start marinating, I said, okay, thanks. I never did. I never cooked. <laughs> her her meals for him took 24 hours. No wonder he loved it.
0: How does uh, writing a play work with between you and he? You've written several. How do you do it? We've
4: written over 28 plays. there's a bunch of short plays that we've written called Love Always We Wrote, Lovers and Other Strangers. Our first play, when we got together, we wrote this play, and then uh, it was going to be off-Broadway, then it was on-Broadway, then we sold it to the movies, then we were nominated for an Academy Award, and I said, hey, this is easy. Sometimes I have a great idea for a play. And he says, okay, let's hear it. So I tell him, and he says, I don't get it. So I just keep talking until he understands what I'm talking about. Made for each other, the first movie we did together, I I had a great idea of of, of a woman's life until she meets the man. Uh, He said, well, wouldn't it be better if, if it was two lives? And we watched them flounder until they meet each other. And that became made for each other. That's sort of our process. I started one way and he says, wouldn't it be better? He, he brings in the masculine point of view.
0: Tell us in relation to my life on a diet, would you say that this is a play that is aimed at women?
4: No, because it's about trying to have a career, trying to have love, making a fool of yourself and then landing on your feet. And it's about my meeting Joe and how my life changed when I met him. And it's really autobiographical, done in terms of what I was eating. And maybe that influenced my life, what I was eating. Like, I was on the champagne diet. Oh, my. Vogue magazine said if you have a glass of champagne before every meal, um, you'll lose your appetite. So I did that. But they said it, it couldn't be cheap champagne. So I I was I had a, a three hundred dollar a day Cristal habit, and I became a drunk.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. How long did that uh, did that last for you, Renee?
4: He was making the movie in in uh, Rio, Blame It on Rio, and I, I passed out, spread eagle in front of Michael Caine, and he said, "I think you have to go to AA from your diet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, Renee. <laughs> That's quite a picture. Well. When you get here, Joe's going to be with you, and he'll be your director. Um, what kind of a director is he? How does that he's work? He's very
4: sensitive, because he's been an actor, too. He is an actor, too. And, of course, since we're having an affair, it's nice when the an actress always has an affair with the director.
5: <laughs> it keeps um, things
0: simple. Instead of you both ha- complicating things by having other people, the, bringing them into the mix, right? It's simpler. Yeah, it's just the I two get of to you.
4: flirt with him.
0: Because you have worked with all kinds of directors on the big screen. Oh, I and worked the small. with
4: George Abbott when he was a hundred years old. Uh, he would send somebody home for wearing dungarees and sneakers. He'd say, "This is the theater, and if you can't be respectful, you better go home." That's how he was.
0: And what was that production that you were working on?
4: At it the was time? called Agatha Sue. I love you. Now he would have a heart attack when he sees people come to the theater in shorts.
0: Right, and workout clothes. Um, yeah. Give us another example or a quick story about a director you worked with at some point in your career.
4: I worked with Sidney Lamette back in the days when television was live. I remember I was a telephone operator, and I just had one line going up. <laughs> and at re- rehearsal, he came over to me with his teeth gritted together, and he said, just say the line, Miss Taylor.
0: Yeah, I've heard that it is harder when you only have one line because you want to give it everything you've got.
4: I know. Your whole life story you want. Put in one going up. It's harder to do one line than to do a whole play, to start a whole play. Because if, if you do a whole play and people don't laugh or cry, you say, oh, well, I'll get them in the next scene. If you only have one line... You want to be discovered going, (laughs) (laughs) up.
0: I have a hard time imagining that you would struggle with stage fright or nervousness before your performances because you seem like a person who is always ready to give and to tell a story and to be in the spotlight. Is that true, or do you sometimes still deal with that nervousness in your stomach?
4: I do. I shake before I go on. I remember I was in the wings, and I said to Helen Hayes, who crossed herself before she went on. I said, does that help, Miss Hayes? And she said, yes, if you can act. And she came to see me in a play that I was in. It was near where she lived, and the next day she sent me a bouquet of lilacs from her garden, and I saved that note from Helen Hayes. Anything
0: else you'd like to tell the audience about My Life on a Diet, which is going to be here for some performances on Saturday and Sunday in Tucson?
4: Well, I like when people come backstage and they tell me what diet they're on. (laughs) And I like to share that with them, their problems with their image, their identity, and how they feel about themselves, whether they feel good about themselves, about the way they are, or, or it's always a carrot being held out to you that you're going to look better that you're going to be good enough someday if you just lose 10 pounds. But I like to know where they are in their life because I've played Arizona before. The same people come and they tell me, remember me? Here's me with my son, and he's now a doctor or whatever.
0: Do you get recognized a lot in public? I would assume that when you are recognized, it's often because of your voice.
4: Yes, it is. And it's, it's nice, people from... Countries all over the world. I was in Saks Fifth Avenue, and a Chinese woman <laughs> recognized me. She said, you know, the show, the nanny plays in Hong Kong and Indonesia. It's, it's nice when foreign people recognize me.
0: The Invisible Theater presents My Life on a Diet, starring Renee Taylor, directed by Joseph Bologna, this Saturday and Sunday at the Berger Performing Arts Center in Tucson. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.